Stanford is a place to be curious and not judgmental. That's from Ted Lasso, actually. So he said it first. When you, you're going to hear, you're going to be around all these different people. You're going to hear them say things. There's going to be some people who say things you just don't like. They land wrong on you. They might upset you. They might offend you. And try to be curious about it. Ask questions. Push them on their ideas. But don't jump to conclusions. About Today we have Dean John Levin of Stanford Business School with us. I personally am so excited to have Dean Levin on. I went to Stanford Business School, met my husband who helps us on the podcast here. And so this is like a big reunion for me. So thank you so much, Dean Levin, for coming on. A few words about you before we get started so folks know. So Dean Levin went to Stanford undergrad. And then he went on to get a master's in philosophy from Oxford, a PhD in MIT, collecting all of these degrees, came back to Stanford in the year 2000. And my understanding is you've been here since then. Today, you're the dean of our business school. Welcome, John. Jennifer, thank you. It's great to see you. And uh, what a pleasure to get to be on your podcast. Amazing. Uh, should I call you Dean Levin or John? Would you prefer? You for call me John? either one. <laughs> I love I love John. I'm just going to call you all John. Right. Uh, John, I want to invite you to tell us in a few words, who is John today? Oh, that's a great question, Jennifer. We're going to start the, <laughs> start the podcast. <laughs> well, you know, part of what, um, who I am today is, um, is of course, my, my family and the sort of life outside of work. And I'm incredibly yeah. fortunate to have three kids, one of whom is already off at college, but two of whom just started high school. Uh, ninth and eleventh oh, grade this Time year, flies. and so we're deep in uh, start of school mode right now. My wife's a physician, and mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, has you know been with me for a long, long time. I met in high school. I, oh wow! Yeah, yeah. When did you start dating? In high school? We started dating um, our senior year in high school, and even went to oh, the I high couldn't... school prom together. <laughs> That's so cool. And did you, uh, how did it happen? How did it progress with you traveling to England and Boston? Was she around? Did you do lots of long distance? You know, it, was, it was such a different time then compared to today because we, we graduated from high school in the, in the spring of 1990. And I came out to stay, we grew up in Connecticut. In, I grew up in mm. New Haven, Connecticut. And so when we graduated from high school, I came out to Stanford and she went to Cornell. So she was on the East Coast. And um, we didn't see each other that often, and there was no email. I mean, I actually got an email account my first oh, yeah. week at Stanford, but I didn't use it for like a year and a half because there was no one to write to, and it was <laughs> sort of a new technology. So it wasn't for a couple of years that we started emailing. And telephone calls were, you had to pay for a long-distance call. They were expensive, so we didn't talk on the phone. So we wrote letters, physical letters, um, for basically for like four years of, of college. And, uh, and then we see each other in the summers and at vacation. And uh, what a romantic story. Yeah, we still actually, I mean, Amy actually kept some of the letters. I should have done a better job of saving some of the letters, <laughs> but I, but I, she was the one who was, who was better at that. And um, anyway, then we, you know, then we, then we graduated and we moved to England together and, and uh, things sort of went from there and um, been together ever since. Beautiful. I, so that's the, that's sort of the first, that's the personal part of my life. And then, you know, professionally, like I'm here at Stanford, I'm in my office and I, I like you said, I've, 
had a, you know, had a really fortunate professional career that I basically came to Stanford as my first job to be a professor in the economics department back in 23 years ago and, uh, and never left and fell in love with this place and had been really fortunate to, to get to spend my whole career here. It sounds like you, I do life design work. And so it sounds like you figured out what your passion was early and you were fortunate to be able to have found that early and you, you stuck along with it. Sort of totally serendipitous though. You know, I like, I, I, virtually nothing in my career has actually been, it, it makes, you know, you know, it always makes sense looking backward. You sort of see how things develop, but like if you'd asked me at any point in my career, what will I be doing in you know a couple of years? I would never have been able to to tell you that. And I, you know, it's it, and, and it's a lot of serendipity in, in anyone's life. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So coming to your professional life, John, you are <laughs> the dean of one of the best business schools in the world. Help the audience understand what does that job entail? And then I'm so curious, which part of it do you find the most meaningful? So business schools are really special places, actually. They're, um, they're, in a way, I mean, there are other professional schools that have some of the same aspects of business schools, but, they're, but business schools occupy a very unique educational and sort of um, role in the, in the world, which is, and particularly at a place like, like Stanford, which, you know, which has a dual mission of, of research of ideas of illuminating what's going on in management and in business and in the, and in the world and education, educating you know, leaders for business and for mm-hmm. other sectors. And what makes business schools, it, it, I didn't start in a business school. I never went to a business school. I was never at a business school until I became the Dean of Stanford Business School. And so when I started, I actually didn't really completely understand the magic of a business school. And I've sort of come to appreciate, actually through this, I keep, I appreciate it more and more every day. Like it's a, it is, it, it's an incredible mix. And to me, the mix, the thing that makes it so uh, amazing to be at a business school, particularly to be at the Stanford Business School is you, just the set of people who are interacting every day. You have these brilliant academic scholars who are at the tops of their fields. They're leading thinkers. They win Nobel prizes. They, they, they just are, you know, they, they, they just in love with ideas and also with how ideas kind of get out into the world. And then you bring in every year, we're just about to do it this year, you know, a set of students who come in, they're so aspirational, they're so talented and, um, and they're so action oriented. Like they just, they're going to be there for just a short amount of time. And they just want to get things done. They want to get out there. They want to make things happen. They want to change the world. And that mix of sort of ideas and action is very unique in higher education. Like it's really special to be on a campus where people are mixing it up in that way. And the students come, they absorb some of the thinking, they meet people, they go out and make things happen. They bring that energy and that sort of drive for like, how do you get things done into the world of ideas, the academic world? And you just get this incredible flywheel, which is... Yeah, um, you know, which especially basically your job is, you know, I tell people that the job of being a, a the job of being an academic leader, in a sense, is not a complicated one. Like your job, your primary job is you go out and you get great faculty, try to get the best faculty you can, you go out and try to get the best students you can, you put them together, make sure they have the pieces that they need. 
and get out of their way. And like, that's the fundamental strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Execute on that. That's awesome. And as you were describing what business school is like, you're taking me back to our GSB days and it's so, so special. Like just, it feels like it's magic in a little bottle that you get to shake up. And each time you shake it up, something new comes out of it and very, very special. So I feel like I, I get a sense of what's meaningful about it to you today. I want to talk a little bit about how the MBA degree and program will evolve in these ages. So we know that the MBA degree was formed around the boomer generation when we were training folks to be managers. A lot of the world today is changing. We talk about AI, which we'll we'll talk about shortly, uh, but even how the generations think today. Gen Zers famously are less, for instance, status oriented than millennials or other generations have been, et cetera. And so I'm curious how you're thinking and how we should be thinking about how the MBA degree will evolve to cater to these new generations and how the world is changing. And, and, you, and I think you, you raise actually a couple of really interesting points about the, the sort of way that, that um, the MBA degree and business schools have evolved uh, over time. Business schools are unusual because they're a professional school but they're educating people for a profession where you don't need a certification to go into that profession. So, you know, unlike in law or unlike in medicine, you know, you don't have to have a business degree to be a very successful business person and business leader or entrepreneur or investor and so forth. And they're, so they're, they're very tied in a sense to, to, the, to the labor market and to people's careers and to kind of people's development in those, in those types of fields and have to be responsive to that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that have changed a lot as a result, because for a long period of time, there was a huge ascent of MBA degrees. The, it was an expanding uh, area. More and more people wanted that sort of professional managerial skills the advent of sort of scientific management back in the 60s and 70s, which really came from business schools and infiltrated, sort of really sparked the consulting industry, quantitative finance, uh, operations, got out into so many thinking about organizational design, organizational behavior, so impactful. A lot of that sort of got out there now. And so what, is, what has sort of happened in, in the business school world is the demand for business education has continued to go up. It's gotten global. It's gotten more and more because the world is changing so much has become a kind of lifelong thing. Um, But the MBA degree has not grown, continued to grow. It's sort of slowed down in a certain sense. And, um, And part of what I think has happened there is that even though an MBA was not you know, formally a requirement to get into certain jobs, there was a long period of time where an MBA might have been informally a requirement to get in certain jobs. It was, the, it, was the, it was a rung on the ladder to move up if you were in finance, if you were in consulting, if you were in many large organizations to get into management. And that's mostly not true anymore. That you can, you can actually just continue up in lots and lots of professions and lots and lots of fields and lots and lots of organizations without stopping, taking two years to get an MBA degree. Yeah. So what is yeah. an MBA degree about in a world like that, where you don't need it as the rung, step on that rung to get up the ladder? It means that an MBA degree today is, is not really about kind of climbing up in that sense. It's basically about 
pausing your career or not necessarily pausing it, but sort of taking two years from your career early on and in a very short amount of time, getting the opportunity to explore many, many possible paths. There's one of our faculty members says many versions of the future you and, mm-hmm. um, and sort of seeing what would it be like to be an operator, to be an entrepreneur, to be an investor, to you know, to work in all these different industries, to work in these different places in the world, and just the intensity. It's like having, you know, a hundred internships in two years. You get this unbelievable yeah. and then to meet all these people who have are pursuing these different paths. And you know, I like to tell people that when I, I got a PhD, that was like being given a powerful microscope to zoom in in the most specific possible way on one particular problem. And this is like a telescope, just opening up the universe to you. It's the opposite. It's sort of, I wish I'd been an MBA in that sense. Like, it's really great. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, and that's what, what it's about. And so MBAs are, are have become, instead of kind of just a, a step along a, a, a sort of vertical career path, they're basically a way to take people who are coming in with all different backgrounds and kind of doing all different things. And then mix them all up and let them see all these different things and then fan them out in these many, many different possible paths uh, from there. And that's makes the, that kind of makes being around the MBA students incredibly exciting and fun because you just don't know where they're from and where they're going and what's going to yeah. happen and yeah. like what ideas they're going to have. Sometimes come. they don't or, know where they're going. They don't know either. Exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah. And it, you know, it's uh, so that's, I think that's, that's sort of the, that's how I think of the MBA today. It's this, it's this kind of uh, launch pad for, 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 for many, many different future paths. Love that. Again, in life design, this is a lot of what we do, and I wholeheartedly agree. John, I still do get comments from folks who are anti-MBA who are saying, is the MBA worth it? It's not really worth it. What do you say to folks like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's different ways of measuring that. I think you know, one way to measure is you can look at things like... Um, you know, the, the sort of ROI on the degree. And there's all kinds of calculations like that, like what are people's starting salaries when they come in and they go at it? Actually, you know, by by those conventional metrics, MBAs are really good investments, just generally speaking, better than almost any uh, graduate program, maybe the best of all graduate programs. Um, but that's a, not a good way to think about it, actually. Uh, you know, the, the way I generally like to think about it is for people who are in there, you know, most of the students who come to the MBA program are like you when they when they come that they are they're kind of in their mid twenties or so when they when they show up, and they're going to work for a long time after they leave, like maybe fifty years given the way you know lifespans are mm-hmm. increasing and, and health spans are increasing. And you know, the way I think about it is you just have to have a long horizon on the decision to come to school. That's our biggest challenge in recruiting students is not to think about like will this get me to a better place in two years or three years or four years, but in 50 years, when I look back, am I going to think, I really wish I'd worked for all 50 of those years versus 48 of them and having spent two years sort of coming to business school and, and seeing all these things. And and uh, I think just both in terms of the ideas you get exposed to and the opportunities that open up and the things that later on will pay off because you got exposed to them and started thinking about them, the people you meet. Yeah. It's an incredible, incredible investment. Yeah. To me, I always say to folks, it's a very personal decision and folks have different priorities. Maybe you have a sick parent or I don't know, finances or whatever it is that's very personal to you. So I always say it's a very personal decision. Uh, But for me, what makes it really special, I would say is A, what you mentioned about you get the time and space to 
explore many future lives of yourself. You get all the resources, the professors, the industry experts, and the space to be able to do that in a way that is really tough to do otherwise. And then B, the people to me are just the magic where you get access to the highest quality of folks. I think Stanford does an incredible job at recruiting and then also at developing the culture of the students, making sure like no asshole policy, things like that, like pay attention to what your friends are going through, be there for each other. They may sound really small, but I think when you pay attention to that and build that into the culture, it makes for a really caring uh, and supportive environment. And then you carry that through for the rest of your life. Like we say, we got married via Stanford, my husband and I, but also so many of our close friends, folks we talk about businesses with, opportunities about we would not have met. Uh, and I think that's also a big, big part of it that I mentioned to folks considering business school or not. Jennifer, what, what was your consideration when you thought about going to business school? I'm sure you didn't need it to sort of have a good job opportunity. Well, I had an interesting path. I am from Sierra Leone. It's, the, it's consistently in the bottom five poorest countries in the world. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then before business school, I built a, an organization in Sierra Leone. I partnered with Gates Foundation and Harvard Med School, and we were addressing the leading cause of maternal death in Sierra Leone. And that, to me, within nine months, we were able to help uh, reduce the incidence of postpartum hemorrhage by 96% for the whole country. And then the Ministry of Health adopted the program. And so I was 22 and I was able to impact thousands of lives versus, for instance, my dad, who was a doctor in this very poor country where it was, he was one of 50 doctors for 6 million people, he was able to help one patient at a time. And to me, that experience just, I, it also matched my personality. I like to move quickly. I like to be working on different things. I'm hungry for impact. I fell in love with entrepreneurship through that. But I had taken no business classes. I knew nothing about how to build a company, how to run things. I had been going on the trajectory of going to med school. Uh, and so for me, the MBA and specifically Stanford was the opportunity to learn in Silicon Valley about how do you build the best type of company. And it's interesting because I'm now an executive coach slash life design partner. I worked in entrepreneurship. I still think I am still an entrepreneur. I'm building my practice. I get to support entrepreneurs. But then I learned after GSB that I really enjoy empowering humans to have huge impact and that like these one-on-one -on -one conversations are my superpower and also they really energize me. And so I think I would say just staying open to learning about what you like, what you love and where you can have the most impact and going with that. And also learning that life is also a continuous evolution. We change constantly and we make the best decisions with the information we have at the particular time. So GSP was wonderful for me to explore and go into startups. And there I learned more and I've, again, pivoted. So your background was, was, in, was in public health and in, um, mm -hmm. and in sort of setting up programs, and, and, uh, but not in business. Did you, no. how did you, why did you think that, I mean, I, why, why did you think that a business school would be the place to, to sort of learn about how to get things done as opposed to learn about sort of business or was, did you want to learn about business? So I ended up doing GSB and HKS. It was also, it was, I was thinking I want to help alleviate uh, health inequity in the world because Sierra Leone, where I grew up, is, has tons of health inequity. Also, I'm half Ukrainian, and we know the war in Ukraine right now. I also grew up during a war in Sierra Leone. So just kind of both countries have a ton of inequity in health, education, things like that. 
And my worldview is that to have a long-term impact in societies and communities like that, you need to work with the government and the private sector. And so that's why I wanted to do both. And then specifically with the business degree, I wanted to be in Silicon Valley where it felt to me like Detroit may have been the place to be in the time when we were making cars and you wanted to be in the car industry. And I wanted to be in Silicon Valley in this moment of startups and building and learning from the best. One thing I love about your story, I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a, your trajectory is so interesting. And, and I think, so I, <laughs> I, well, I think it's wonderful because it's not, you know, it's not what people would stereotypically think of as a business school student. Yeah. And yet, yeah. if you were to walk around our campus and introduce yourself to a bunch of students, I think most people would be blown away by the number of students who come from, you know, very different types of backgrounds and career trajectories. Um, some of which, of course, are you know more traditional business careers, and some of which are not. And and also totally. the idea that you know b- business schools, although they they there absolutely is a whole core of them that is sort of fundamentally about business and the private sector and how corporations work and uh, and markets. Um, a lot of what um, students take away from a business school is really just about how, how could you make any organization work better? And mm-hmm. how could you kind of um, get any team to work better? How could you be an effective leader? You know, we're a, we're a school of business, but we're also a school of organizations and a school of leadership. And for some people, those turn out to be the skills that are the ones that they then put to use to be most impactful in their lives. Because ultimately you're building a business, but you're building a business comprised of people serving your customers who are also people. And it's important to be able to understand how people work and how do you motivate them and what are you not understanding about maybe this underperformer? Are they actually underperforming or are they just uninterested? And how do you then put them in a role that they can uh, excel at? So a lot of these soft skills too that GSV, we're working on at GSV have been super handy and I'm a huge fan. Shall we, shall we come back to the evolution of the MBA, John? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> tell, tell, what, 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 where, where do you want to go with that? I want to talk about AI because the world has changed since last December when OpenAI launched uh, this AGI. And now we have large models. We have, I think now, ChatGPT4, if not another version. And it's infiltrating so many industries. I use it a ton for my work. Lots of folks I know and work with use it as well. And so I imagine you've thought a ton about this, about how will we integrate large language models into the MBA education? I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing, isn't it? That, you know, if we'd been having this discussion a year ago, all of this work was going on in computer science and people were advancing yeah. all these deep learning and using these bigger data sets. And so there, there surely were a set of people out there who kind of were aware of how much the technology was advancing. But like within a span of a year for, for everybody to get to see how far the models had come and the way you could translate between, you know, natural language queries and all of the information on the entire internet and images. And it's, it's mind blowing, actually. I mean, it's just like a revelation to sort of see that, and and the fact that everyone got to sort of see it together is it's incredible. It you know does feel like a technological revolution, um, 
Yeah, definitely an inflection point. Lots, lots point. And, to build on. And early days. I mean, it really is early days to sort of like to think about where where the technology is gonna gonna go. And I mean, you can already see like the energy here over the last year. I mean, we're so lucky because we're surrounded by a lot of the technologists who are pushing this these this technology forward, either on the Stanford campus or kind of around in Silicon Valley, who are at the big companies mm -hmm. or in, in new startups. This is incredible energy, incredible excitement, and and the amount of just like interesting set of ideas that are coming up in like every direction is so cool. I mean, it's it's like incredibly energizing. <laughs> Some of them are, you know, people thinking about, okay, how could you, this is an amazing technology. How could you use this to solve different problems in business? How could you use it to improve business processes? How could you use it to open up new verticals by training it on specific data, you know, whether it's in, in healthcare or in, you know, communications or mm -hmm. uh, education. Um, I think there'll be tremendous advances in scientific discovery because of AI. Because we're going to be able yeah, to, sure. to to use analogs of large language models, not trained on the corpus of information on the internet, text on the internet, but say on you know molecular interactions or something to do make advances in material science. Um, there's the potential for big advances in education, because it's going to be you know what an amazing tool to be able to explore the world uh, by just asking questions. To a to a computer, um, so it feel it really feels like we're at the in the early innings of what's going to be a, a, an amazing uh, couple of years, with some risks, of course. You know, it's it's like any major technology. There's lots of ways that things could go wrong, and so you know, we really want to ever should be thinking carefully about that as well as the the opportunities. But like it's been it. It it feels really exciting. I mean, it's going to be a big yeah. And like we're we're going to have so much going on this year in AI. It's going to be like the year of AI. It's different and it'll be great. Right. I can't wait to see what I get to learn this year. It's good from everyone yeah. uh, around me. Does, can I ask? Does the school have a policy against using ChatGPT for courses right now? So because I know lots of high schools do. Yeah. So of course that came up right away last you know, already last fall, as soon as ChatGPT came out, because it turns out, you know, there've been articles out there, like you can put in, you know, cases, case studies, for example, mm -hmm. and, and ChatGPT will bring up a, you know, generally a pretty proficient uh, summary of a case and what the yeah. questions might be. Um, ChatGPT can do a lot of the assignments in some of our, like yeah. our first year analytics classes. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty powerful tool. It's not a, it's not a A plus to, you know, you're, you wouldn't, you're not going to be the top student in the class if you're ChatGPT, but you, you can do pretty well. The policy we took, and I think um, it, it may evolve a little bit over time, was to basically let instructors uh, figure it out themselves. And so some of our faculty mm -hmm. have decided they're going to policy where they, they don't allow it uh, or they don't mm -hmm. allow it in class. And some of our instructors in the policy where they just encourage it and they're trying to learn from the students. So they're, they're trying to yeah. get people to... Like you, so it's we're in the experimentation phase, I would say, at this point, and we're gonna try a lot of things and talk about them, and we'll see where it, where see yeah. where it goes. Yeah, we'll fail a little bit, and we'll learn, and we'll evolve as we go. Beautiful. I remember you were at a conference this summer, I believe, with other deans of business schools. Is that correct, John? 
I, we had an interesting, uh, we did an interesting event mm -hmm. that I organized in, in Washington, D.C. In, uh, oh, wow. in June, which was um, for a, a, a group of, uh, of deans of, of business schools. We, we spent a day in D.C. meeting with, with congressional leaders and, and leaders in the, in the White House um, to, to kind of hear from, just to step back and sort of set a little context, you know, I think one of the really interesting things that's going on in business generally right now is the, the relationship between business and government is, it's sort of been a moment of, of change. It's been changing and it's in sort of a moment of change where things could go in different directions. So for example, the US has come back to industrial policy in a way that it has not for years and years and was, and really hasn't even thought about actually. So things like investments in semiconductors, the, the way that the federal legislation has affected the energy industry and investments in renewables, um, a change in posture on things like antitrust and, and regulation. Many of the national security issues that have a kind of economic business implications, for example, the relationship with China um, or the, the war in, in Ukraine. And you know, at business schools, we don't necessarily teach about all those things because a lot of them haven't been on the table in decades in some cases. And so we, we I thought this would be really interesting to go to Washington and kind of hear from some folks who are active in the, in the thinking about kind of regulation, about legislation, inspecting business, about kind of what the future of capitalism is going to look like from, from that perspective. And then we could bring it back and help us think about what was going on at our schools and maybe share also with folks there uh, a little bit about um, what we were trying to do yeah. and how we were thinking about educating future business leaders. And it was great. We had a wonderful day. We learned, I felt like we learned a lot and uh, um, it was really, uh, it, it, it was really great. And particularly, you know, if you're out on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, sometimes our federal government, Washington, D.C. can feel kind of far away. And it was really great to get out there and do some listening uh, on, uh, in that part of the world. And did you feel like you are bringing topics from that into the curriculum? I think we, there's, there's no question we are. I mean, one change that I've seen in, in, at Stanford, and it, and, it, and it may well be true in other business schools today, is I see more interest among our students today in the public sector and public leadership than I can ever remember seeing here at, at Stanford in the past after, you know, many years being on the, on the faculty. And I mean, you're an example, you went to the Harvard Kennedy School, of course, is in parallel with your, uh, with, with yeah. your business degree. And um, you're not alone in doing that. Um, I think it's a great thing. I think it's actually a, just a wonderful thing that students would be coming to a business school and they'd be thinking about what is my path to having uh, impact in the world, to serving and so forth. And, and maybe they're not going to go into we do have a student right now who's running for Congress, but um, that might not be a typical path. Uh, but the thing, but hey, my as career, we know, there's no typical path. Yeah, I could bring those <laughs> skills into the public sector. Yeah. And you know, it's a, we have an incredible point of pride now because one of our alums is the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And that's a I know. wonderful thing <laughs> that's to right. see someone doing, that's doing, right. you know, doing Rishi something Rishi like And another one is running he... for president right now. So we've the president of the United States, in fact. So we okay. have, we, you know, the, it's, it's great to see uh, our alumni at. Uh, really? Who? Doug Burgum is running for, he was just in the debate for the, the GOP debate. 
uh, last week, and okay. and uh, he's a incredibly successful entrepreneur and governor of uh, North Dakota. Amazing. Um, yes, I think just as a student of both, I feel like it is incredibly valuable to understand how the policies and government affect the markets and how both are intertwined. It was incredibly valuable for me in my experience too at GSB. There were some classes that felt more economics or policy based that were pop. I see the synergies there and I think that is going to be a great addition to the program. I had a fun question. Did Rishi Sunak visit Stanford on his California vacation? If not, you need to give him hell for that. Rishi Sunak was visited Stanford before he became prime minister. Maybe I, I got to come back <laughs> I, 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 a year and a half ago, and um, oh nice, and came to the came to the GSB and met with a bunch of people and was um, and was very impressive. Had embodied all the characteristics that you'd want to see in a Stanford GSB alum in terms of intellectual curiosity and engagement, and you know. Thinking about uh, the future, he was the at the time the the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance uh, Minister for for the UK, and um, but we didn't see him on the uh, on his on his last visit. So hopefully on his next visit, we'll uh, we'll get him to come to hopefully, we'll give a uh, talk to the students exactly and, and promote more public policy interests. Uh, on this topic, John, I actually want to talk about free speech and including that as well in the curriculum. So for me, institutions, I think, are a space for the exploration and debate of ideas and institutions are neutral and it's healthy to be able for students to be able to have conversations with one another where they disagree. And it's all about connecting with one another and honestly being able to see each other as human beings and learn from one another. We had an incident at law school in March of this year where some students disagreed with an invited speaker to campus. I think he was conservative and he had some views on maybe COVID, LGBTQ, um, et cetera, and disrupted his speaking. And the then dean of the law school, Jenny Martinez, issued a letter and an apology stating that the institution wants to stay in support of free speech. And I loved what she said about we want to ensure that folks reconsider assumptions and biases, that we connect and see one another as people and our responsibilities to treat one another with dignity. And she's now, I believe, provost of Stanford. And I know that the law school then included a mandatory training on free speech for their students. I'm curious, how are you thinking about this for the business school? I think it pertained. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts here. So, I mean, the the ability to freely exchange ideas and to you know, try out different ideas from different perspectives and to debate them and to question them and to interact with ideas, even ones that are challenging or you might find some offensive. I mean, that is, that is what has to happen on a, on any university campus and protecting that ability is, you know, that that's a, just a fundamental, um, it's a foundation of any academic institution. And, you know, Jenny Martinez's letter was a great articulation of that because and it's one of the, the, there've been many great things. That's been a, there's a long history of that going back many, many years, the kind of foundations of academic Actually, some of them go back to Stanford back in the, mm-hmm. more than a hundred years ago. Um, and uh, Stanford was the place that actually some of the ideas about academic freedom came from and tenure came from because we, we had some um, 
episodes back in the early days when Jane Stanford was trying to fire faculty and didn't like what they had to say and so forth. And and that actually was the the impetus. So it's it's appropriate uh, that Stanford is is a you know should be a leader in this area. Jenny's memo was wonderful because she pointed out first of all that actually there's there's legal protections for speech, particularly a place like like Stanford in California, where the First Amendment is essentially the the, the binding policy on campus. Um, but that's not the main reason to do it. The main reason to do it is because you need to you need to protect universities as places where you can have an exchange of ideas and where you can kind of explore every angle. Mm. And it's also a foundation of inclusion. You try to collect people on campus who come from different backgrounds, who have different perspectives, who have different expertise. And part of enabling that mix of people to learn from each other is giving them the opportunity and encouraging them to speak up and share their views, whether they have political differences or they come from, you know, just totally different perspectives, come from different countries or what have you. Yeah. Um, and it's incumbent on us to make that happen. At the business school, you know, I start, when I welcome students, I'm about to do it in two weeks. One of the things mm. that I tell the students when they arrive is I always, part of my talk is I always talk about exactly this point. And I, that the, what I tell them is um, Stanford is a place to be curious and not judgmental. That's from Ted Lasso, actually. So he, he said it first, but um, I, that's great. <laughs> that when you, you're going to hear, you're going to be around all these different people. You're going to hear them say things. There's going to be some people say things you just don't like. They land wrong on you. They might upset you. They might offend you. And try to be curious about it. Ask questions. Push them on their ideas. But don't jump to conclusions, about, particularly about the person. And that, you know, so we started that way. And what makes it, what really makes it happen on a campus to sort of be able to have that environment is probably the students and probably the faculty. It's probably faculty then going into classrooms and establishing classrooms as places where you can really test ideas and push ideas. And we have some faculty who are incredible at doing that. You've probably had some. Mm -hmm. They're really good at kind of teasing out different perspectives and making sure that you don't have sort of a, a, a kind of creeping quiet among certain parts of the, the, the class. And, and uh, you know, as a leader of the institution, you have the responsibility to make crystal clear that this is a core value of the institution and to back it up when there's problems. But it's really a collective responsibility of everyone to kind of make sure that the institution is able to have that kind of openness uh, to ideas and speech and, and discussion. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, there will be more training for faculty and students just as a refresher? I Yeah personally really liked a lot of the trainings in the fall quarter, for instance, for yeah. new students um, and feel like this could be a great integration. There, 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 so we, for a bunch of years, have been teaching, uh, done workshops for faculty about kind of uh, about managing difficult conversations in the classroom and, and try to help faculty think about mm. either how do you open up discussions or if something goes wrong in a classroom, which, you know, is happens, uh, happens. Yeah. How do you kind of turn that into a learning experience? If you can, I mean, it's, it's hard in the moment. So it's not that you can, you know, a hundred is not a realistic, uh, batting average for, for kind of doing that, but how do you kind of be prepared for that? 
we have a new, we actually just put in place, it's going to go, well, for, it'll be in place for next year's incoming class because we just, the faculty just voted it last spring. We just put in place a new requirement that we called the engaging with differences requirement mm. for students, which um, came back for a whole, we had a kind of a whole year of discussion among the faculty and with students and, and uh, um, uh, other folks at the school about we actually started from thinking partly about how do you teach students, prepare students to manage you know, more diverse workforces in a time of more polarization and contention. And so part of that is sort of managing diverse teams. And, and part of that is actually being able to talk to people and have kind of yeah. civil discourse and debate and discussion, uh, disagreement effectively. I think that's huge. Being able to have conversations civilly with folks you disagree with, because that's a lot of our world today. And that's the only way we will make actual real progress and preserve inclusivity. And I'll tell you the, the, the part about th that I'm excited about the requirement. We're in the process of figuring out exactly what courses and, and activities will satisfy it and kind of what, what will be co-curricular, what will be curricular. And I, I'm, I'm very optimistic with how it's coming together. But the part about it actually that to me was, um, at least so far, almost the most important part was the discussion that happened last year on the class in on the campus, partly between students and faculty, and hearing what students thought. And there was actually a tremendous amount of alignment between the students and the faculty, which was incredible. And partly among our faculty, I mean, we have a faculty just like our student population that their views are all over the place. People don't appreciate that. It was like Stanford, they tend to pigeonhole us as, you know, people, everyone goes in yeah. one direction or something like that. That's not, you know, if I walk outside my office into the back, that's just not true in our, in our building. People have all different views, actually. And the fact that, you know, last year we got to sit down and probably over, of course, to me, it's been three hours just talking about some of these issues, about diversity on campuses, about speech, about academic freedom. People had such strong views and such passionate views didn't agree, but really listened to each other. And at the end, we're able to come to an agreement about here's what we can all get behind. We all believe in. Um, it was great. I, I mean, I, we our you know our faculty meetings are private, but I, if we'd great. had a camera in there, I would have been proud to have people see that this is the kind of discussion that can happen uh, on a on a on a campus in in 2023. It does feel like one of the things you need to get this done is folks at the table willing and eager to participate. And that sounds like what you just described. So that is such a nice feeling. And we're wrapping up soon. So I want to end one. You mentioned you're welcoming these students in two weeks back to campus soon. What do you hope for the year ahead? First of all, I love that. I, lo I mean, you probably remember the day you arrived on campus. It's my favorite day of the year. I love it when the students it's arrive. So fun. It's this like unbelievable I mean, it's just great. Like the beauty of getting to be on an academic campus is at a, at a business school or anywhere is you just have this cycle of renewal built into your year. And this is the the rebirth part of the year when everyone comes and like the energy level <laughs> just goes, you know, to... I feel like this is the rebirth. And then at the end, when we graduate, it's like the phoenix rises again. From the <laughs> oh, that's my, that I love too. That's by the way, amazing too. But it's, it's just this, you know, yeah. it... <laughs> I, I sometimes I always tell people, you know, about uh, the, um, we had a faculty member at, at I mean, I'll come back to your question, but we had the faculty member at Stanford a long time ago named John Gardner, 
And yeah. uh, he was a he was a, a great faculty member and a real uh, leader in the world. When he started Common Cause, he was in the in the cabinet, uh, Secretary of uh, Health and Human Welfare back in the, the early seventies, and then taught for many many years at Stanford. And he has a great book about he, on, called On Renewal, um, which is it, it's kind of but partly about personal renewal, like how does how do you kind of keep renewing yourself as a person, and partly about organizational renewal. How do organizations keep from going to seed and and kind of find new horizons? And universities, I always think reading that book, which I've read many times, like some of that is built in. We get that renewal um, as part of our structure. So that's great. I'm looking forward to that yeah. so much. I can't wait to see our students and they're gonna it's gonna be so much fun. And what am I looking forward to this year? I am looking for, I mean, I'm just looking forward to the interactions that we're gonna have. I, it's such a joy after couple of years of the pandemic, some of the mm -hmm. euphoria of in just person. being together and interacting and being in classrooms is still there and nurturing that feeling of energy and connection and optimism. That's big on my list for the year. And that kind of just, yeah, just that joy basically of being together. Yeah. I'm incredibly excited about everything that's going to happen in AI this year. I'm incredibly excited about everything we've been doing around business sustainability that's going to be really great. That's right. We're going to, got a new school. We're going to, yeah, we have a new school at Stanford of sustainability and we've been doing a lot of things with them, classes and conferences and programs and entrepreneurship. We're going to offer undergraduate classes this year for the first time at the Stanford oh, business nice. school. And I'm super excited for that experiment. We're going to try to rethink sort of business education as a part of a broader liberal education. And, uh, I'm just excited to kind of be around all the, the people at Stanford this year and, uh, see what happens when people start to dream things up. That's lovely. I think we'll end there. I think that was beautiful. John, this was so great to have you on. I am also looking forward to seeing all the change in technology and applications that we get to see. And I'm very, very jealous, actually. I think the new student energy is so uh, infectious and I'm, I'm looking forward to that for you too. Thank you so much. I am too. You'll have to come back and visit us on campus at some point this year, Jennifer. So it's, it was really, really a pleasure to get to do this and to, to see you. And congratulations on everything you're, that you're doing right now. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.